0: Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about BetOnline.ag. All eyes are on the gridiron as teams are back for another football season. And as always, BetOnline is your number one spot for all the pro and college action this season. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use promo code BLEAV, BLEAV to receive your bonus today. From football, basketball, boxing, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers on the 2021 season. Bet online, where the game starts. Ladies and gentlemen and non-binary peoples alike, you know what that music means, it's time for another amazing, fan episode of Wired Up. This is Wired Up episode 89 and oh my lord, what a weekend this has been. This is why we created Wired Up in the first place is so we can talk about all the crazy stuff that happens on Friday and Saturday so we can then fast track and get to the NFL on Sunday because there is so much to get to. Here on today's podcast, we're recording this on Saturday night. It is just after the Texas A&M victory over the Alabama Crimson Tide has shook up the world of college football in ways that were totally unpredictable and unprecedented. Even in a year where literally every team at the top of college football keeps consistently losing. So welcome in everybody. We're going to talk about Red River. We're going to talk about MLB baseball. Well, actually, let me just get this out of the way right now. Houston Astros are overwhelmingly better than the Chicago White Sox. White Sox benefited from playing in a division that had those four terrible teams, the Twins, the Royals, the Tigers, and the Cleveland Guardians, as they are now called, um, the White Sox benefited from that, probably weren't as good as people thought they were all season. Houston's gonna make the World Series, that's my prediction. We don't have to talk the Astros are gonna sweep the White Sox on Sunday. We don't have to talk about that anymore. But we'll talk about the other three series here on the podcast. We may also get to Wilder Fury, who knows? We'll see what we end up getting to here, whether or not that fight ends by the time I feel like putting out the podcast and going to sleep, so that I can get up early to watch. Jets and Falcons. And you guys can listen to that as well live on YouTube and Instagram live. Make sure to check out our link tree. The, de- the link to that is in the description to today's episode if you're listening to this before 630 on Sunday morning. So some of you may get it, some of you may not. Look for the podcast somewhere in your feed coming out on Monday. With that being said, let's talk about Texas A&M because Texas A&M lost to Arkansas. We made fun of them in the whomping fashion back on memes of the weekend a couple weeks ago. And we didn't joke about them last week, but they lost to Mississippi State, who is 7th out of 7 in the preseason in the SEC West and on their way to finishing 7th out of 7 in the sec west lsu's kind of close but i think lsu could take down mississippi state head to head so texas a&m was unranked coming into this game their quarterback's been out for four weeks now since he took a brutal hit against colorado and he might be done for the season at this point so they got a backup quarterback a backup right tackle a backup tight end and a couple of people out on defense and a player who left the game because of targeting so Texas A&M's already ridiculously depleted, and lo and behold, Texas A&M beat Alabama because it wouldn't be college football without that. This was everything that Longhorns fans were hoping would happen and more, except Texas A&M gets to be the spoiler and now gets to be 4-2. and two, And congratulations, Texas A&M. Unfortunately, in the one season that your chances to beat Alabama are already derailed, you beat Alabama. And this is going to sound a little salty, and I'm not salty about it at all. We we have made consistent jokes about Texas A&M for a few years now, even like before I had a podcast, I was making jokes about Texas A&M cuz as long as Jimbo Fisher has been the coach there, Texas A&M exists to go 8 and 4 and lose to LSU and Auburn. And then they go play in the Belk Bowl or the Music City Bowl or the Tax Slayer Bowl at eight and four. And then last year, during the pandemic, Auburn fired their coach, and LSU went into unofficial sanctions. And basically their those two programs fell apart. Auburn's bouncing back a little bit, but also first year with a new coach trying to retool, et cetera, et cetera. So by virtue of LSU and Auburn now being bad, Texas A&M got those two easy wins and got to have a year where they were second in the SEC West and they went 10 and two and they were trying to make a bid for the playoff but they were trying to go up against undefeated Notre Dame and they tried to use all the tropes about why Notre Dame shouldn't get into the playoff because they don't play enough tough opponents and they don't have a conference title and none of it was going to hold water for Texas A&M and then they get to this year. And it looks like they're going to try and compete again because LSU and Auburn are still bad. And then they lose to Arkansas. And we made all the jokes two weeks ago about how it's going to be so unbelievably funny if Texas A&M is now the 8-4 and four program that loses to Alabama, Arkansas, and Ole Miss instead of being the program that loses to LSU, Auburn, and Alabama because they just can't win if you're Texas A&M. And it's funny when Texas A&M doesn't succeed for the same reason it's funny when Texas doesn't succeed. Texas A&M has the second large I'm sorry, the third largest athletic budget in all of college football. University of Texas number 2, Texas A&M number 3. They have so much money invested in that program, a gigantic alumni base, and they're Texas's SEC school. And yet they can never ever Get to the pinnacle of the mountain, and lo and behold, Texas A&M spent seven and a half million dollars to get Jimbo Fisher. They spent eight million dollars to extend Jimbo Fisher. We talked about that two weeks ago on our podcast about the fall of Florida State. You can check that out as well. Just pressed for time; not going to go into all the details behind that exit. SEC moved worked out very well for Texas a and financially. Football-wise, they've just been an eight-and-four team, which, to be fair, is better than I think most people thought it would be when they made the switch over to the SEC. You know, bounced up by a Johnny Manziel Heisman season, Texas A&M kind of built themselves up as a program that wasn't going to become like Ole Miss or Arkansas and lose, you know, nine games every year for five or six years, like Ole Miss and Arkansas had to do to get to this point, or what Mississippi State is now or what South Carolina and Vanderbilt are on the other side. The point being for Texas A&M, there was enough money in the program that they were going to be a base level average in the SEC. Because they're going up against programs that also have a lot of money, i.e. Alabama, LSU, and Auburn, who they'd lose to every year until the last two years. And... We were still happy to keep making Texas A&M jokes, watch them get whomped by Arkansas, lose to Mississippi State, now their season's over, and now they've jumped right back into the thick of things by beating Alabama, opening a door for someone to have a chance to win the SEC. Unfortunately for them, the loss to Mississippi State means Alabama would have to lose again for them to win the SEC West, but still... Someone's going to get a chance to take down Alabama. Someone's going to get that one chance to maybe, just maybe, beat Alabama and win the SEC West. Is it going to happen? Hell no, it's not going to happen. This was a ridiculously random upset. Alabama had won 80 consecutive games when they were favored by double digits. They'd won 100 consecutive games against unranked opponents. This was a massive fluke that Alabama pretty much corrected in the second half. Like, they get a blocked punt that, as I'm watching this, they get a blocked punt for touchdown that was so quick and so easy that I couldn't even process what was happening when it got blocked. That made it 24-17. What did Texas A&M do? Very next play, 96-yard touchdown return to the house. Alabama never gives up those plays. And Texas A&M got it at exactly the right moment they needed it because their offense had 13 yards through five minutes with five minutes left in the game. So through 25 minutes of the second half, they had 13 yards of offense against Alabama. And they were just living off that nice kickoff return for touchdown. Alabama climbed back to 38-31 to lead. And then Texas A&M did the weird thing where they outscored Alabama 10-0. With all those backups that I listed earlier, 10-0 at the end of the game. They went right down, scored a touchdown. Alabama came out, went three and out, punted back to Texas A&M. Texas A&M goes right down, wins the game, easy field goal. Everything I thought Alabama would do when put in a situation down seven with three minutes to go, Texas A&M did. And it's just a weird fluke. It's going to happen sometimes. Great night to be at Texas A&M. Alabama's going to lose some of those every now and then. Did I think it was going to be Ole Miss last week? Yeah, I kind of thought that would be the joke, or, you know, someone would take down Alabama because they're just bigger, stronger, faster than even all the SEC teams they're playing. It's like a machine working at Alabama now. And Sabin's been through these losses before one to Johnny Manziel back in 2012, twice to Bo Wallace at Ole Miss lost to Auburn two years ago in 2019, lost to Auburn in 2017. It's been through this before. They're going to be okay. They just kind of like cross, the, cross, eh, cross their T's, dot their I's, accept the loss. Now you do have to beat Georgia in the SEC title game, which puts pressure on Alabama, certainly. But Alabama missed the playoffs a few years ago, or a couple of years ago after losing to Auburn. It's not the end of the world for the Crimson Tide. They'll find some way back. Does it mean that their margin for error has pretty much closed? Yeah, that's definitely true. But Alabama is going to be fine. You have these fluke losses that happen every now and then. This is a moment to celebrate the Texas A&M Aggies, which in this case means celebrating the fact that I was dead ass wrong. Texas A&M made me eat my words. Took them five years. Five years it took them. But they finally made me eat my words. So you can celebrate this victory, this small little victory that Texas A&M has. After five years of being exactly the team I said they were, they do get the victory. And again, this isn't like salty. This isn't sour grapes on my part. I was going to say salty grapes, but salty grapes seem kind of weird. You know, It's a weird combination of flavors with the, the juice and the salt. Salt's just going to get in water, and it doesn't really blend well. You're going to get salty water and your salty grapes. But this is not sour grapes. This is me acknowledging Texas A&M does get to make me eat my words. This is going to happen every now and then. This is what I talk about with beefs with like the Bears and the Giants and the Broncos and the University of Texas. Eventually, they're going to make me eat my words. It's just not going to happen very often, and I get to be the winner almost all the time. This is one of those times where I get to be the loser. It happened for the Bears a couple years ago when they picked off Aaron Rodgers to clinch the NFC North title right before the double doink made people forget all about that, but it happens every now and then. They get to make me eat my words. Enjoy it for tonight, Texas A&M, and enjoy it for the next week or month or however long this shall carry your program, I really hope you still end up going 8-4. and four. Of course, the Red River. Juju Talk Sports over at the Slump Buster was devastated. So you can go drink up his tears right now over on the Slump Buster podcast because he is a Longhorn from Austin, Texas. Boy, that was a weird game, wasn't it? This was originally one of those things that I was like saving in the back pocket for the Memes of the Weekend podcast on Monday, but that game just ended up becoming so epic that now it gets to lead us on Wired Up, and I say this a lot, usually whenever good college football happens, that Wired Up exists to talk about college football, because as the week goes along, college football kind of gets lost in the cycle, and so we take advantage of this by talking about it after a college football Saturday before an NFL Sunday. So, let's talk about the Red River because, whew, that was a chaos game if I've ever seen one. That was just high-scoring offense. It didn't feel like, you know, the Rams-Chiefs game where everyone was just going up and down the field and the offense seemed beautiful. And then you had weird defensive plays that kind of changed everything throughout the game. didn't quite feel like that. It felt like, you know, Texas kicking ass at the beginning, 70-yard play, 70-yard play, 70-yard play. Every time the ball went up in the air, like 40, 50 yards and had gigantic arc on it, you just felt like the other team was going to catch it, which is the exact opposite of Penn State and Iowa, which lived up to its billing of the worst top-five matchup in the history of college football because every time either of those quarterbacks threw the ball in the air, you just assumed it was either going to be totally incomplete or get intercepted just every time the pass went up there. But Texas, Oklahoma, every time a ball went deep, you just assumed that the wide receiver was like 15 yards behind his defender because there were so many big plays that happened in that game. I was actually, I mean, it takes a lot to to make a comeback like that, but I was kind of surprised that the game was the highest scoring Red River of all time at 55 to 48 because the game felt like it was not that as you're watching it in real time so let's start off with texas because this was literally the only bad scenario that could have happened to texas like i guess bad in terms of like you just get the doors blown off of you by oklahoma yeah that's bad for your program so maybe that's just as bad but for texas if you listen to Friday's podcast with Razor Rosenthal, where we, we touched on the Red River game, it wasn't the big impactful thing we were thinking about of the weekend, more than baseball or more than Iowa-Penn State or more than Bills and Chiefs or whatever else was in that podcast that you should absolutely check out over on this feed. Actually, it's the podcast right below this with Razor Rosenthal. But even still, I said that like this is a no pressure game for texas like they're just you you get a pass no matter what that you're playing with house money because if you beat oklahoma it is a massive program building win considering that most of the people doing it are tom herman's players with steve sarkeesian's boring ass offense as the system or and it's not really boring it's just super predictable I told the story before I was watching the college football playoff game last year between uh, Alabama and Notre Dame. And literally on the first drive, I just predicted every single play that Alabama would call leading to a touchdown is part of that, that you just need a simple offense with the talent of players that Alabama has probably partially true. But Sarkeesian's offense was just ridiculously predictable and I guess that was kind of what they did against Oklahoma, but also they just took advantage of Oklahoma's secondary missing a couple people and just in general Big 12 offense being or defense being bad, which was not the case this year for Oklahoma. I don't want to sound like one of these like just casual people that just doesn't like realize Oklahoma had a really good defense this year, but Oklahoma was depleted a little bit and they got smoked a good bit by Texas early on in the game. But like I was saying before, like this is the only bad scenario you could have had is having the gigantic lead and then blowing it at the end of the game because now you just get to become a meme. Yes, an entertaining game, and yes, you put up 48 points, but Texas has also put up 48 points before and lost against Oklahoma, mainly last year they put up 48 points and still lost to Oklahoma. So Oklahoma finds themselves as a come-from-behind fun story, but for Texas, you just get to become a joke in a situation where you were going to get a pass no matter what. At least for me, you were going to get a pass no matter what if you lose to Oklahoma. This is first year with a new head coach, mostly players he didn't recruit. You get a pass in these situations. And that was not the case for Texas because now you blew the gigantic lead. It was right there in your grasp, and it just vanishes right in front of your eyes. For Oklahoma, let's talk about Rattler because I didn't realize the internet was one against Spencer Rattler, but two, Rattler had been chanted that they want. They were talking about benching him. I, I can't remember which one it was. It was one of those games that Oklahoma won by less than 14 points because Oklahoma is only allowed to win football games by less than 14 points. Doesn't matter who the opponent is, but they were chanting for we want Caleb a couple weeks ago. And it seemed like a little bit of a troll, like it was just Oklahoma fans chanting it just to troll Spencer Rattler or troll the team a little bit. And it ended up paying out in the end for Oklahoma because they put in Caleb Williams and Caleb Williams ends up going berserk at the end of that game. I assume he'll be the starter going forward. I think he had like four touchdowns in the second half. By the way, if you want to go back to Oklahoma's non by the way if you want to go back to oklahoma's last six regular season games oklahoma played two lane only one by five western carolina won by 76 but that's one of those like you just pay someone to come in and get murked seven against nebraska three against west virginia six against kansas state seven against texas The 21-point comeback, the 18-point comeback in nine minutes was the blowout of the wins this year for Oklahoma. That team just exists right now. They're just not allowed to win a game by more than 14 points. Apparently, they're not allowed to win a game by more than seven points at this point. That's just the rule of being Oklahoma at this point. And so the Sooners find themselves yes undefeated but also everyone doesn't believe that you're real and maybe Caleb Williams is the switch that people look at and they're like okay now we believe in them because their quarterback is pretty good even though he's a true freshman who as they mentioned multiple times on the broadcast and I don't want to beat a dead horse at this point but it is you know kind of interesting Caleb Williams did not play high school football last year he's a true freshman at Oklahoma and he is whooping ass for Oklahoma. At least he did against Texas here today. My favorite stat from this game altogether, though, is what I briefly mentioned a second ago Oklahoma had an 18 point deficit, 38 20, with 109 left in the third quarter, with seven minutes and 10 seconds left in that game. Texas was down seven. It was a 25 point swing in nine minutes. Do you know how hard that is to do to score 25 points? That's three scores, that's three touchdowns, a field goal, and a two point conversion in nine minutes. It's so hard to do that. And Oklahoma just went up and down and up and down and up and down. And Texas had a turnover mixed in there. And Oklahoma immediately turned it into a touchdown. It was the worst Con 9 situation other than losing by 63 that Texas could have had. Because the only thing you wanted to do walking out of that game was don't be a meme. Don't be a meme if you put up a respectable performance It's a program builder. You can at least sell that the other way because it's Sarkeesian's first year, and to be honest, he's playing with Tom Herman's players. Therefore, he kind of does deserve a pass. Oklahoma's really good. Like one of the seven or so best programs in college football. And it was not that way for texas because now you get to become a meme unfortunately for them they did storm that comeback at the end it was 48 41 at one point and they scored that touchdown that about 30 percent of people couldn't see because the espn app crashed right as texas was scoring that touchdown to tie the game so about 30 percent of people watching the game just got an espn blank message for like 45 seconds and when they came back it was 48 48 And then Oklahoma just goes right down the field, right down the field. They're going to get into field goal range, save their timeouts for one play with 10 seconds left. And Kennedy Brooks just is going to go 40 yards on the last play of the game because Texas just went into don't tackle him mode. We're not going to tackle him because then we might get a chance to get the ball, but that's not how it works with 10 seconds left in the game. They're on their own 40. That's what you do when you got the ball at the two-yard line. You say, D- let him score so that we can touch the ball. You had to go 40 yards to score. Yes, Oklahoma did have a timeout, but he had to just go 40 yards to the house in order to put the game away instead of leaving it on the line of the kicker, and your chances are so much better for the kicker. I'm not saying Texas like purposely didn't like purposely let him score it's not the case it's just the defense was so bad on the last play of the game that all of a sudden oklahoma scores a touchdown with three seconds left and everyone is in shock and awe but we're not talking enough about just how terrible the defensive play call there was and this is just a true pac-12 uh, i'm sorry pac-12 force of habit big 12 game Um, The Big 12 traditionally doesn't play defense like that and you have every pass that goes up in the air thinking it's going to come down and hit and you've got air raid offenses even though Lincoln Riley now kind of runs a neutered air raid offense and he doesn't really fart out Heisman Trophy winning quarterbacks anymore like he did with Baker Mayfield and then Kyler Murray Jalen Hurts finished second in the Heisman Trophy it's been a while for that like they went Austin Kendall last year which wasn't a great quarterback by any stretch of the imagination rattler was a top prospect or a top recruit didn't turn into anything now you got a true freshman in caleb williams who looks kind of awesome but you know hasn't quite been the same a lot of it is predicated on running the ball killing time and frankly oklahoma just winning games by six points or four points regardless of who the competition is whether it's against tulane whether it's against k-state Or whether it's against a top 25 team like the University of Texas. Horns down, ladies and gentlemen. The Texas Longhorns get to be a meme once again. Which is always fun for me as someone who dislikes the Texas Longhorn program. For a lot of their white nationalist ties. And also just generally being tribalists who don't want to evolve with the times in the worst ways possible. Uh, Part of that being the Eyes of Texas stuff. Which... We've talked before about on the podcast, but basically it's a song that has racist connections that the University of Texas mandates that players stand to the same way that you mandate people stand for an anthem of sorts. If players don't want to sing to the eyes of Texas, then, you know, you can't go to another school type of stuff. So University of Texas, not the biggest fans of them. And you get to end up laughing at them as a meme because they've been a little bit of a meme program for the last 10 years, which usually happens when a team has high expectations. But the reality is that they're setting their expectations too high because it sets them up for disappointment. And then you get to laugh at them like I've been doing with the Chicago Bears for five years and the New York Giants and the Denver Broncos. When you set your expectations too high, Then we get to laugh at you when you don't meet those expectations, and you usually get to be right in those beefs. The only difference this time around was the University of Texas didn't have expectations coming into this game. The fan base was like, yeah, look, we're in a first year with a new coach. Oklahoma's a very good program. We just want to cover. We just want to look respectable and just make it a building block. And then they had it. And that cocky Longhorns fan started coming out again, Then they had it stripped away from them in the worst way possible. 25 points in 9 minutes. Unbelievable. You had it stripped away from you in the worst, most embarrassing way you could think of. Other than losing by 42. Once you had it in your grips. Because if they lose by 42, Longhorn fans are just going to be defeated because they already were like afraid in the back of their mind that would happen. This one, you had it. You brought the cocky, swaggering Longhorn fan out at halftime and in the first quarter. Really, actually, at the start of the game, they were up 14 nothing. like a minute and a half into the game. You brought it out of them immediately, and then it was just three quarters and three and a half hours of joy watching Longhorn's fans suffer. Because you got the cocky Longhorn fan, and then they had to eat their words. Honestly, the worst possible scenario that could have happened. Now that I've talked it out, this is worse than losing 42-0. to Having that situation happen where you're up 21 early in the first quarter, like at the end of the first, you're up 28-7. With one minute left in the third, you're up 18. And to just have it disappear in like 16 minutes of misery was just mwah, chef's kiss on this weekend of magical sports. Shout out to Rob Stone for the 2021 Padres Rap Anthem All Nine Innings, which we're still going to use every time we want to talk about baseball, and we do very much want to talk about baseball because I love October baseball so much, and I've consumed so much baseball over the past three days, I want to talk about it. So, we, I don't want to talk about White Sox Astros, though. I mentioned why earlier on. I don't want to talk about that, but I do want to talk about the, the other three series, and Boston and Tampa technically could be done by the time that we come back on Tuesday because Mondays are obviously our football Mondays but by the time we come back on Tuesday that series could be over so in the meantime what have we seen from the Red Sox and Rays series so far well we saw Boston put up zero runs then we saw Boston put up 14 runs in the most bipolar version of the Boston Red Sox that I have seen which is really saying something considering that the Boston Red Sox year to year, go from World Series champions to not making the playoffs, like, for 20 years. I think they've only made the playoffs, like, twice after winning a championship. They've only made it back to the CS once, but then they, like, totally tear down the team, build up a new championship roster, and win, because apparently it's that easy to win a championship when you're the Boston Red Sox. So, Boston has pretty much ran the table with the Tampa Bay Rays so far and maybe it's not fair to Tampa because they have put up a pretty good performance thus far but Tampa does have room for concern and I talked about this on the slump buster when we did our playoff previews like Tampa and Boston both have really deep offenses like from one to nine every single player has an OPS plus above 100 and so it's going to be hard to get outs in the series and I didn't know any of the Tampa starters coming in And I joked about McClanahan being the guy who was starting game one for Tampa Bay. And of course, I don't know who the Tampa Bay starters are because the people I got. Well, first of all, this is just the thing that Tampa does. Tampa has players come in every single year who no one's heard of that end up whooping up throughout the season. And I just wasn't keeping close enough tabs on baseball throughout the season to really get a strong picture of that Tampa Bay offense. I'm sorry, Tampa Bay pitching staff. But McClanahan was awesome in Game One. Like, obviously, put a shutout through. I think like six innings. He went. He went through two times in the order, and then they pulled him. And it was again the controversial thing where they're like, "Why would you pull a starter who's doing really well when numbers suggest that the third time through the order the starter's going to get worse?" So they pulled McClanahan at a certain point there, and he was awesome. And Tampa's offense was awesome, even though you had weird platoon situations because he went from. Eduardo Rodriguez to a right handed reliever, and they still ended up doing awesome in game one. And then game two was just the Kike Hernandez game because Kike Hernandez is good for one of these games every playoffs where he just goes absolutely bonkers. And apparently that translates over to the Boston Red Sox. The joke used to be with Kike Hernandez on the Dodgers just because he was like that utility guy, give you a pinch hit single every now and then, defensive substitution. (laughs) pretty much what Kike Hernandez existed for and he just went absolutely insane in game two with a home run and a double that probably should have been a home run he had five hits in six at-bats scored three times drove in three runs like Kike was just off the charts Bogarts played really well JD Martinez came back from injury and had like three RBIs or something like that this is awesome everyone except Schwarber ended up having a good game for the Boston Red Sox and It's been interesting so far this year because Boston is really, really bipolar. And it's hard to gauge how good the team actually is. Like, they went from being just totally dominant and people were like, how is Boston this good? And I said they would regress. But then at a certain point, I bailed on that because I didn't think anyone else other than Tampa proposed a threat. Now, to be fair, they did end up as the four seed it's just the way they got to the four seed was not how I thought it would be, which is tied with the Yankees and on the last day of the season, in jeopardy of going to have to play Toronto in a game 163. I did not think that's how it was going to go, that they wouldn't clinch until Rafa until the last inning of the last game of the season. But Boston did get technically to the point I thought they would. And so Boston gets to Tampa. And they get the one win in Tampa they desperately needed. So now they go back to Game 3, and I just don't know which Boston team is going to show up. But it was still really interesting to watch them just pile on Tampa. Because I don't know if we were certain that that could happen. They did dominate the Yankees thoroughly. They have a lineup top to bottom that's super deep. They platoon really well between left and right handers, just like San Francisco does. It's the reason why I thought San Francisco would make the World Series and the exact reason why Tampa was the number one seed by like seven games in the American League, despite the fact I'm looking at the Houston Astros, I'm like, oh, that's the best team in the American League, it might be the best team in baseball. But Tampa still was seven games better than them pretty much for the last two months of the season, because that's just how good Tampa is, especially in the lineup from top to bottom. So if Boston's pitching staff is going to be not as good, which again, it's small sample size at this point. It's basically a best of three series, pretty much a toss-up. But if the weak link of Boston is going to be starting pitching staff and bullpen down the line, I mean Chris Sale only went one inning before he got pulled in game two. And because the offense just went berserk and you got the Kike Hernandez game, you end up winning anyways and surviving what was a really awful job by your pitching staff. Now the bullpen ended up saving them, but Even then, the bullpen had like eight runs of leeway to work with. So it's small sample size. It's random. I don't know what's going to end up happening in game three for Boston, but I sure as shit know that this Boston team is impossible to figure out. And for Tampa, I feel like I've got a good idea who Tampa is, but I felt like I had that throughout the season because it's a lot of similar people that I know. And throw in Wander Franco, who's one of the 25 best players in baseball, and he was born in two thousand one I think I think he was born in 2001 he was born the same year I was and he's already one of the 25 best players in baseball just swap him and Adamus in there and put him in the three slot Yandy Diaz has been awesome like all the names that helped them get to the World Series last year and beat the Yankees and Astros in seven games in back-to-back series They're all still there. At least this time, they're all producing at higher levels. Six players on the Rays hit 30 homers this year, and Tampa Bay, I feel like I know where they are, even if I don't know anyone on their pitching staff. I know their pitching staff is still pretty good. It's like saying I don't know anyone on Iowa, but picking Iowa to win and getting to be right because Iowa did beat Penn State. It's kind of the same thing with Tampa. You're just betting on them having really good pitchers. The evidence you're seeing suggests they have really good pitchers, even if they're different pitchers than the really good pitchers that you had last year. Let's talk about the Braves, because the Braves stole a game in Milwaukee, too, this weekend. So, I did not realize until watching a good portion of Game 2 between the Braves and the Brewers, because I'm going to be real, I was needed a break in between the... 12 hours of baseball that went down on Friday. I had to kind of pick and choose my spots to keep watching. And uh, Braves and Brewers was one that I felt I could pass on, especially considering both teams scored zero, point or zero runs in the first six and a half innings of that game, which I found to be hilarious because I would have just said that as a throwaway joke. I'm like, get ready for a lot of zero zero games, which was just like the total furthest you could take that joke because both teams are not very good at batting this year and then they actually became stereotypes of themselves in that first game so Brewers end up winning Rowdy Telez, who I forgot he was there because these teams have made so many moves to try and get semi-competent hitters on their team which helped them get to the playoffs like just being not historically bad on offense like the Brewers were to start the season I think they were 28th in the league in hitting to start the season but just not being historically bad on offense was a victory in and of itself for the Brewers, and they got Rowdy Telez and they got Eduardo Escobar in there, and they brought in uh, Avisal Garcia in the offseason, obviously, and they've just tried to like plug holes here and there just to get through with the lineup, and the Braves did the same thing after Acuna got hurt. They got Jock Peterson. They got Jorge Soler. They got Adam Duval, who's now one of these like Joey Gallo guys who had, a, I think, if I remember correctly, like a 220 batting average. Had 38 home runs this year. He was on the Marlins to start the year. So many dudes that just came out of nowhere and are just filling that lineup on both teams. Obviously, I mentioned Rowdy Tellez. Um, Daniel Vogelbaugh was playing first base for the for the Brewers. I was like, oh my gosh, it's just all rejects from other teams filling the lineups. But anyways, so we get to game two. And the thing that I didn't really think about that much, other than the players on both teams just being rejects from other teams and small plugging holes at every position because there are just so many holes on both teams on offense, Max Fried, who is the starter for the Braves, he's a lefty, he's young still, semi-young, I think he's like 27 or something like that, but besides the point, Max Fried missed last year's playoff run for the the Braves when the Braves were up three games to one on the Dodgers in the NLCS. It was the best version of that Braves team. I still attest it was the best version of that Braves team, and they were one game away from the World Series and looking really good against a Dodgers team that I felt they matched up pretty well with. And so... They didn't have Max Freed last year, and one of their big complaints was that they did run out of starting pitching. And they came into this year, and people had them as the trendy World Series pick because obviously Freddie Freeman is still an MVP year-over-year, Ozzy Albies, yes, you lose Marcelo Zuna, but you still have Ronald Acuna Jr. in there, or you can trade for a Soler or whatever situation you want to point to for the Braves. And they were going to get back Freed and Soroka, which was supposed to solve their pitching problems. And so Mike Soroka ends up having a second season-ending injury for the Braves. They got Charlie Morton in the offseason, who started game one. And then Max Fried came in today and basically shut down the Brewers entirely. Like six innings, no runs allowed, super efficient doing it too. Like he got through, I want to say six or five and a third With like 60 pitches then he got into trouble in the last inning before he got pulled and Eduardo Escobar worked his pitch count a bit, but he went like old timey like on pace to throw a complete game at one point. Obviously, you wouldn't do that in the playoffs anymore, especially because you're going to need him to pitch again at some point in this series. But still, I didn't realize just how. Good, the Braves can be if you just fix the starting pitching problem. And their offense is not as good as it was last year. And it's the reason why, when we were doing previews on the Slump Buster, I said, like, I'd take Brewers in five, but I only say that just to show the struggle I have between who's going to win and then ultimately get eliminated by either the Dodgers or the Giants. But I found it super interesting that Max Freed and having that stable p- pitcher in the rotation. Makes such a huge difference for the Atlanta Braves because we've talked about the Braves in the past a couple times on this podcast, and their history recently has been super interesting. Where in, they were terrible and bottomed out after 15 years of making the playoffs every year, and then they were in 2018, they had like a magical year with Acuna as a rookie, and they had a bunch of fun going through all that, and then they get blown out by the Dodgers, but they get the memorable moment of Ronald Acuna Jr. hitting a grand slam in their first home playoff game since Chipper Jones was playing there. And you get that memorable moment from a year where you were just a fun story, like them winning the NL East was a super fun story. And then in 2019, you had all the expectations, you were the number two seed, and they lose to the Cardinals. And not only do they lose to the Cardinals, they go five games with the Cardinals when they probably should have won in three or four, but it's just baseball and you have random sample sizes. And the Cardinals scored 10 runs in the first inning of that game five. Like you got embarrassed in like the way Atlanta teams get embarrassed a lot. Really Georgia teams. We can encompass all of Georgia into this one now. But in the way Georgia teams get embarrassed, there was an embarrassing moment for the Braves. With a team that was really good. And then the 2020 team ends up being the best version of it. Where Freeman is playing like an MVP. And Acuna is is moving closer to his prime, and Albies is in his prime. And yes, you still have struggles on the pitching staff, but you've traded for Shane Green, and now he's a lockdown closer. And you don't get it again. You get the heartbreak again. And it feels like that's the best opportunity for that window as Donaldson ends up leaving, as you give Ozuna a big contract, and then he has a domestic violence issue that ends up meaning he has to go away now. And you lose Acuna for the season this year, and you just have all this bad luck that even before the Acuna injury feels like the nature of trying to be great sustainably in Major League Baseball. And I never realized that just having a stable starting pitcher really makes a difference going into the playoffs. Like, the the Giants got it with Logan Webb in Game 1, and Logan Webb is not really like the magical starter everyone was looking for but it's the perfect name for the Giants but it doesn't have to be a Max Scherzer or a Jacob deGrom or one of the best pitchers in baseball just having a Max Freed actually makes a huge difference going into a series and it's the first time in this four-year run of these this current Braves team that I feel like they've had that legitimate starting pitcher and it's just interesting to watch it play out because I may have underestimated the Braves in that way and it was just something that genuinely caught my eye that I felt was worthy of eight minutes of talk here on the podcast plus who wants to talk about those offenses they're both totally mediocre and awful can they be mediocre and awful yeah I think they're mediocre and awful interchange them however you want one's mediocre one's awful and I'll let you pick which is which for the Braves and Brewers series Personally, I very much do not love L.A., but I do love Randy Newman's I Love L.A. song. It's, I just wish it wasn't such a banger that they play after every Dodgers win. And uh, whenever we talk about L.A., we're going to use this song. But the Giants also won on Friday, which means we can also play the San Francisco Giants song because we haven't been on the air for two days. So maybe we'll save that for the very end of the pod. But uh, just real quick on this series, because as we're recording this, the Dodgers are up 9-2 on the Giants. It's going to be a 1-1 series. All three that we talked about, rays uh, Bra- or Red Sox, Braves, and Dodgers, all lost game ones, came back and stole game twos on the road. So kind of these series are moving parallel to each other. But the Dodgers, this is just offensive explosion night for the Dodgers. We kind of knew that this was something the Dodgers can do. I mean, they've been doing it for years. Cody Bellinger even got involved AJ Pollock had a big day Mookie drove in an RBI which we come to expect from Mookie like it was big part of the reason why they won the World Series last year was having Mookie Betts at the top of that order hitting home runs to close out game six of the World Series but even still like some of the you could look down the Dodgers lineup and see where there were flaws and we talked about this when we were previewing the series earlier earlier Last week, I think it was on Tuesday. But you can see the flaws in different places in the Dodgers lineup. Logan Webb pitched really well. And I don't really know much about Logan Webb. Except he's one of these random starters that just does awesome for the Giants. And he did great. They go to Gossman. Gossman does slightly better. And then the bullpen blows up. I'm sorry. Gossman does slightly worse. And then the bullpen just kind of blows up. And the Dodgers get to kick ass on the the Giants. But still... We kind of knew that that was something the Dodgers had in the tank, and this series won't start again until Monday in Los Angeles, and this was the premier series everyone was excited about, and I think neither of the games have been interesting, I'm sorry, not interesting, close. They haven't been close, but none of the playoff games have been close so far other than that wildcard game. If you go to Astros-White Sox, two blowouts in favor of the Astros, you go to... Braves and Brewers yes the one game was close but it was like two to one the whole way through it was zero zero didn't get a ton of excitement I know pitching matchups can be fun but that one wasn't even one of the like fun pitching matchups that was just both offenses being bad then they the Braves end up routing the Brewers in game two uh Rays dominate game one Red Sox dominate game two Giants dominate game one, Dodgers dominate game two. So we haven't had like these close finishes yet. And honestly, the stakes haven't increased yet. But the fact that all three of these series are now these random best of three situations makes it playoff baseball and makes it a chaos series and makes it that we're going to have a fun ending. And since this Dodgers-Giants game series kind of feels like it's for the national league crown and potentially for the world series, because I don't think the brewers or Braves can beat either of those teams in a seven game series. Like there's just a significant talent gap between the two teams. Since that one feels like it's going to be for the world series, that being the Dodgers and giants, it's the series that's going to be the most captivating across the next two weeks. Well, I get not the next two, the next two days. And of course it's going to be captivating. These two teams are really good. The Giants won 107 games. Dodgers won 106. But like I said earlier on, I think on Friday and Tuesday and back before the wild card, I'm done doubting the San Francisco Giants. They'll find a way to steal one in Los Angeles. It'll probably be game three. Do I have any proof behind this? No, I'm just gasbagging at this point after an emotionally crazy Saturday. But you know what? I'm done doubting the San Francisco Giants. I'm feeling their chances to win in Los Angeles, which means we can hit this lovely music because they did indeed win game one and we're projecting that they'll win game three on Monday. now to cap off our chaos sports weekend which is only the first half of the chaos sports weekend because we still have nfl games tomorrow tyson fury knocks out deontay wilder (sighs) deontay wilder had his moment didn't he like fourth round he was holding on but the official scorecard at the end is a lot of 10-9s, and it's a lot of Tyson Fury, and by about round eight, you kind of knew that it was about over. I kind of phased out, was editing the podcast, but in the spirit of disclosure, I was also watching the fight as we were trying to talk about Dodgers and Giants, so we got all of that in here. Are we crazy people? Absolutely. Should I have waited until the morning to produce the podcast? Maybe. But at the same time, we need to get you all this information as fast as possible so that you can watch the Jets play the Falcons at 9.30 on the East Coast, 6.30 West Coast time. And you can watch it with us on YouTube and Instagram Live or wait another day to hear the podcast version of it. It's all lovely and wonderful. We can put smiles on our faces that way. So Fury was the heavy favorite coming in. I think it was like minus 270 coming in, which is interesting considering everyone was hyping up this fight as like part three and it was going to be a dual pay-per-view and it was going to break all kinds of records because the heavyweight division doesn't matter the same way it used to in boxing because the best boxers are floyd mayweather and uh, triple g canelo alvarez none of them are heavyweights but they're still the the most skilled boxers who can sell the best fights you can go manny pacquiao oscar de la hoya back as far as you want to when the heavyweight division stopped mattering the way it did. But when it does matter like this, people do get kind of excited. And Tyson Fury is legitimately one of the best boxers in the world. You don't get super excited about boxing all that often, but Tyson Fury draws people in, even though Tyson Fury has all the other problematic stuff that I'm just too exhausted to do an in-depth detail about. I encourage you to look up some of the stuff surrounding Tyson Fury super misogynistic comments homophobic anti-gay people stuff that has littered his past and kind of consumed him on his way up through the boxing ranks and so with that Tyson Fury gets to win and does it by a late knockout so we get the meme of Deontay Wilder asleep on the ground similarly to what we did with Nate Robinson back when he got knocked out in the arena um, so you put yourself at risk in these situations and I wish we didn't meme those people as much as we do, but it, it's stripping down to your vulnerabilities and then when you get knocked out, unfortunately, you do get to become a joker in the case of Deontay Wilder, I think he wore like a giant mask to the last fight and then complained that the mask made him fatigued because he wore a 25 pound mask that made him look like uh like he was like a, a samurai warrior from the Matrix movie or some weird thing like that, but Wilder was the huge underdog. He had his moment, right? Fourth round, pretty much dominated, and then nothing left after that. So, we got boxing to close out this chaos weekend. Why do sports do this? Why do they put all the chaos in one weekend? And we... Hit our hour mark, but still, it was so much to get to, and I'm going to sleep, get right back up, and get right back on my high horse for Sunday. It's just so many sports right now. Good Lord. So, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for stopping in, and we will talk to you on Monday, two, possibly three podcasts coming out. So, stay tuned, download, love you guys, have a fantastic day of NFL football to finish off your chaos weekend of sports here in October. I'm going to go to sleep right now.